Hello and welcome back to The Game Pit. I'm Sean and here's Ronan. Hello everyone, you're very welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Sean, records being broken, the crowds have gathered, it is the return and a glorious moment it is you and I actually reviewing games together. Yes, you dragged me halfway down the country to make me play some games with you. I say dragged, I wanted to go. I like you keep saying really. dragged halfway. I had further to go than you did. <laughs> I had to go down the country. You had to go up the country. Which, which is harder work. Because that's going yeah, Oh, there you go. There you, you go. You think about uh, that, haven't you? I was about to be nice to you. I was going to tell you I secretly liked you all, all along. I, I've changed my You're going to diss me or something. In fact, I'm setting you up to diss me in this episode. So I'm not getting my hopes up. What's the crack? I'll tell, tell you what the crack is, Rice. We've both been to the cinema and I thought that was worth mentioning. Oh, we have both been to the cinema to see one of the best films I think I've seen in a long time. The new Dungeons and Dragons film is just very good. It's just very good from start to finish. Top notch. I was listening to something today, a podcast, about the start of Sesame Street. All right? You ready for this now? Mm. And the whole thought behind Sesame Street was, so it's filmed like an advert every section to get to hook kids into Mm -hmm. an idea and learn a number and then learn a letter, and then tell a story in one minute. And it occurred to me that that Dungeons & Dragons movie is exactly the same thing. It is constantly, every minute, there's a new idea, there's a new thought, there's a new in-joke, there's a change of scene, there's a change of something going on. It's just constantly unexpected. It's like watching two hours of good TikTok, which doesn't exist. But if it didn't exist, it would be that Dungeons & Dragons movie. It's just constant ideas and novelty and fun and funny on the screen. I enjoyed it greatly. Yeah, now you've put the theme tune of Sesame Street in my head. How to get to Sesame Street. Sunny day. <laughs> I keep playing it in that podcast. It is rammed in my brain, mate. I cannot, I'm going to be skipping along. Just a week. From Sunny Day, Sesame Street, I think Ooh. we're just going to hit a massive U-turn here. And jump straight into the exact opposite. Well, you got to bring me down. Uh, all right. You don't like the game? Is that what you're saying to me? Well, I didn't say that. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. You see what you're saying, though? Because the, the, the big boy of all the games we're doing, we're doing 10 games today, quickly. But the big one, the massive Kickstarter. The big fella. Lots of love. The tough co-op in the snow, Frost Punk. Both of us have been wading through some icy misery recently. It is an action selection game in which the players together are running a colony in a frost punk uh, setting. It's like steampunk, but it's cold. You've got cold Victorian <laughs> sort of standard technology, but expanded slightly. So you've got slightly more complicated steam driven machinery yeah. and the last bastions of humanity are gathered around these huge generators and you have to keep these claptrap generators going in order to generate warmth or you're going to get cold you have to somehow find food or your people are going to die you have to deal with increasing sickness and there are various scenarios you can play the start one which is what everyone's played and everyone's talking about if they are indeed talking about frostpunk and they were like enough to back it or get it is that you are trying to check out to see if you can find any more people by sending up a beacon, but still looking to survive? Uh-huh. Sean, Frostbunk, how did you survive? <laughs> Forgive me if you said it before, but the first thing I just want to quickly uh, you know, did you know it was set in England? 
Yeah, well, New London and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's all set in England, then they move out from London and head north to where the generators are, apparently. Oh, that's a so bad idea. I'm, clo- I'm closer to the generators than you, so... Well, we've talked about heading north, talked about it's a bad idea. <laughs> that's not, so you're dragging the place down, all right. Okay, so how did I survive? With great difficulty, Roland. But that is what it's supposed to be. So I'm not a veteran of the computer game, but I had played it, so I did know what I was getting into. Well, I knew what I thought I was hoping to get into, which would be a almost direct transfer of the computer game, because the computer game is really, really a fantastic game. It's set up to be incredibly difficult, isn't it? It's set up to feel incredibly difficult. I don't think it's an incredibly difficult co-op. I think it's hard. I think you have to make good decisions, but it is set up so that you feel like you are constantly making compromises and making decisions that you're not 100% happy with. And yet, I did always feel like we were making some positive progress. And as long as you have that ability to make the most of small wins... There was always, okay, we've coped with that situation, but also we've maybe built one more hunter's hut or we've got our wall drill working or we've upgraded some housing. So the feeling, the atmosphere is of constant struggle and it is a constant struggle, but I think it's easy to give the impression the wind conditions are more impossible than they are. I think... Tortured uh, sentence. (laughs) <laughs> I think everything you've just said there is kind of it's linked to you because I think you and Rachel are veterans of cooperative games. You you like playing them. You sync off each other really well because you're partners. I hope I would hope you do. And <laughs> I, I think play you playing your Gloomhaven with Lloyd and Poirier and stuff like that. I think you're you're a very good cooperative game player and. I don't play it as much, even though I absolutely adore cooperative games. I don't play it as much. So for me, it did feel like I was hanging on a lot of this game by my fingertips. And I was constantly robbing Peter to pay Paul. Which are the compromises you talked about? But I, I felt that they were just enough to keep me going. And I, I had the same feeling in the computer game. I wasn't very good at that either. And I was just about clinging on. But I suppose that is success in itself, just holding on. I think you've overplayed my hand there and that I was struggling just as much as you were. <laughs> I was just willing to take some solace in the small wins, whereas you were like, oh, this is so hard. So <laughs> it's it's tough in the experience of playing. Uh-huh. It's also not the easiest game in the world to learn. There are several phases in each round in which there are cards which will come out into play which you must react to. There are different sort of positive and negative aspects of your little colony of people you're looking to manage you have to deal with food you have to deal with fueling your generator enough so that you're heating areas of your colony because depending on how good buildings are they're heated or they're not depending how far away they are from the generator they're heated or not you need to spend coal and wood and food to do all these things but they're difficult to get and all these different phases of different types of cards and weather cards and events and technology you can get and how they all interact, it, it's going to be a bit tricky to teach and to learn. Mm-hmm. To me, the rule book and the learning of it was slightly more difficult than it needed to be. I've got two issues with it. 
One of them is the rules. No, actually, three issues of it, Sean. One of which is the rules felt like a list of events without context. And it's only when you started playing that you're able to contextualize the rules that they gave you. And I felt like technically the manual tells you all the rules. It doesn't necessarily help you learn the rules. As we tend to do, I think we learn in slightly different ways. I'm more of a visual learner, and I like to see things happening and watch game playthroughs. And you are, I need that rule book. You read through. So I barely touched the rule book at first. I watched um, the Paul Grogan run through of how to play for only uh, four the, days long. Only four days long. The game in a nutshell. Another really good explainer of game, teacher of games. And I watched a couple of playthroughs online as well. And I came in with my eyes a lot more wide open than if I just went straight to the rule book. So the rule book for me was almost a reference guide. And even then, I did still find it quite difficult to find what I needed out of it. It was structured in a slightly quirky way in terms of getting to that information quickly. The rule book was very daunting to me. That's why I went completely the other way. So you probably watched like between six and eight hours of videos to learn it. Oh, yeah, at least. It's a lot, it's a big, I watched two videos to learn it as well. And like usually I can learn a game from a rule book. I just couldn't learn it from this. Yeah. Part of that is that the game is scenario-based. And when you start off, you don't know how to win. So you feel a little bit directionless and that can make a game hard to learn as well because it's like, well, if you tell me where I'm going, it's like our friend Steve always teaches you, this is how you score points, then I'll teach you the rest of the game. In Frostpunk, when you start playing, you don't know how you're going to win and for the first game, that's never going to help you sort of be able to make those first few decisions to get the ball rolling. Yeah, you don't know where you're going and I, to be honest, I finished the game not knowing where I was going. <laughs> uh, to the graveyard, I knew that. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we've got a slight disagreement here. There are advisor roles within the game, which gives you sort of the ability yeah. to take sort of little special actions for a sacrifice, which actually we very rarely use. The very cool thing about it is that you do get citizen cards, depending upon how many players are in the game. And for one off each of these cards, you can take a normal action in an unusual or beneficial way. I loved them. I loved the timing of them. They're one of the, sort of the positive things that made me feel like I had a little bit of control on, oh, if we can set just set this up, we can use these citizens and use them well. The problem, going back to the advisor thing, was you get four different player aids, Ooh. and none of the player aids is complete. They all have different aspects of these several phases on them, and they don't tell you in what order in each phase these different aspects aspects take place and i found that whole thing really confusing as well again until it coalesced because when it came together then we were oh, i mean whizzing through rounds not quite but rules wise we were whizzing through rounds so the way it, it kind of grokked for me in, in that aspect was that it was kind of and i'm talking going to talk about a game i've never played merchant's cove the way i believe it is is you're each playing a different game trying to score victory points effectively and that's kind of what the idea of that felt like for this those kelper cards gave me a bit of direction individually so i was the the one that was looking after the the generator that's the fella i was the one looking at making sure that we had enough coal for that and making sure that that was st still continuing to pump out heat and looking after the various tracks to make sure they're in the right place that kind of thing so i felt like i had a little bit of direction 
Yes, it doesn't teach you the whole game because then you're doing another thing, Natalie's doing another thing, and Rachel's doing another thing, and we really don't really understand until you're doing that role what exactly they're doing. So, yeah, I kind of agree with you, but it did help me to dip my toe into the game. If you don't understand all the other roles, though, it's quite difficult to make informed choices because of how much all the roles and all the phases all interact into each other which yeah. once you've got over the hump of learning is a fantastic positive and I felt like it all made a coherent story and I was making decisions in phase four knowing what the outcome to a degree would be in phase eight which would lead into phase two of the next turn or whatever it might be I did feel like they all rolled together and it didn't feel like several separate discrete phases it felt like a whole long set of decisions which all were there and i knew why i was making decisions and what my priorities were at the time even if i was making bad choices a lot yeah so yeah once you once you do know the other roles and yeah that they as you said they become a, a help so i want to move on to the theme and the atmosphere of the game you're not always one for being caught up in in, in the thematic decisions of a game like that kind of an overproduced game that kind of thing did you feel like it it made you think of about what it would be like in those situations this is uh i've been thinking about this in sort of a, a <laughs> duality between abstraction and reality because it's grim you've got children starving and getting sick you've got a risk of losing actions because you're letting people die you're teetering on the edge of starvation a lot it's not as far towards the grim reality of this war of mine, but it did give me a slight feeling of that. Mm -hmm. But it was more abstracted. It was less personal. When each person died, uh, although you do flip a card for a negative thing, they, they weren't a person to me. They were part of a colony. And I think it did a very good thematic job of maintaining the fact that you've got a bunch of people to look after. You're not necessarily invested in individual people although they are all individuals. And the fact that, like, if, if someone dies, it doesn't necessarily mean you lose an action meeple because it's, it's sort of each meeple is a bunch of people. And that was part of the abstraction as well into I've got a slightly higher level of thinking here rather than this war of mine, which I, I'll refer to because it is a, another tough co-op with this sort of a, a hard feel to it. Yeah, yeah. That was definitely. I'm on an individual scale. In this one, I'm a leader of a bunch of people. And I think that worked very well. It did, it did. And I did feel like... The game portrayed the challenges really well, like obviously the hunger and keeping warm. And obviously it was to make thematic sense, the further you are from the generator, the colder you're going to be and things like that. And if you're going to go out and shovel snow, it's going to be a cold job and you're going to, you're going to suffer. Absolutely. But I've got a question for you, Ronan. This, oh. this is going to tell you, tell everybody what type of person you are. Mm -hmm. And you're not allowed to lie. Children. Make them work or protect them. <laughs> we did not make them work. We built a children's shelter <laughs> and tucked them in. But luckily, we got the event that you can get like an engineer child or whatever, which helped yeah, as well. Yeah. But basically, we tucked them up because that management of the the good factors, the hope and the, I can't remember the other two, versus the bad factors in the colony, that, that track, Ooh. it's something that it's easy to sort of, I will take the hit on that now. And we'll take the hit, we'll take the hit. But actually, for a lot of the events, if you've kept on top of that, it's giving you that slight eek of, oh, we don't have to deal with one more thing. We've staved that off. And it quite often, it's obvious short-term pain for 
more subtle long-term game managing that track so stuff like putting the kids to work we were like no we, we just don't want those red tokens out <laughs> yeah absolutely well i wasn't allowed to uh, Nat knew Nat's played the computer game with me, so she was like, I'll play it, but we're not making the kids work. Oh, I mean, in real life, they'd be out there shoveling. I don't think we were all, we were all mucking in. But Get down the mine, kid. <laughs> I'm, I'm all up for it. All right. A few, a couple of the small things, really, and then, then the big, big issue. The cube tower, the generator, mm. yeah. did it ever hold any coal? A few times, not, I would say probably about. 20% of the time it would hold a cube or two. Two cubes the whole game. <laughs> that's it. Two cubes. That's all it is. We're just like, well, this is like, what is going on here? Did you, ever get the Sorry? Did, you, did you ever get the upgrade? Did you ever get the upgraded bit? Obviously that you put not. In I only top. held two cubes. For that. <laughs> that did not go well. But that was, that's cool. It's a literally a mechanical upgrade that you put in yourself. I thought that was quite, quite a nice touch. It's such a pain in the bum having it in the middle of the board because you can't see the other side of the board, but there is also no other option. Well, a lot of people put it off to the side. Well, a lot of stupid wrong people put it off to one side. <laughs> I've got to have it in the middle. So what's going to warm the buildings if it's not in the middle, Ronan? What, what, am I warming the mountain? No, it's in the <laughs> middle. That's where it belongs. Okay. This might be something that we never have to care about. Replayability for the game would you play it very different going through the same scenario again or will you just move on to another scenario I've only played the the one scenario two and a half times and not very well so as you said replayability is probably not an issue for me but I think there is going to be a right way of playing it but there's so many cards that can go in and change up the dynamics like different laws you can put in and different cards that come and bite you in the bum and you have to make decisions on so there is a lot of things that can go into it to change it so i think there is a little bit of replayability but i think once you once you're good at the game you, you'll you'll plow through the earlier scenarios giant issue especially for your first game or two the length of the game how yes, long does it take true. you to play your first game we died before the end, and it was still three hours plus. Yeah, we were we were talking about five hours to get the whole lot done. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That is a long, old investment in time. Now, what I will say is that a large part of that five hours was spent in discussion, choosing our own strategy rather than fighting rules and working things out and moving things around. A lot of it was the chat and the most enjoyable part and the here's an idea, here's an idea. They were, oh, hold on, if we do that, we've only got one of those left. How about here's this idea, here's that idea? And trying to pit, patch together different priorities. So it was very, very enjoyable, five hours. But that is a long... You, know, you, you watched eight hours of video, then five hours to play your first game. You know, it's a long, long investment to get used to the game to bring the playtime down to three or four hours to play through a scenario it is but well uh, you touched on one of the the really beautiful aspects of this game is that is the conversation and it's not just conversation at the table and i think you've had it with rachel as well where you go away and you think hang on if we did this and this that would have happened and maybe we could have done that and you're thinking about it like going to bed at night oh hang on i've just realized what we could have done <laughs> that for me is the beauty of a, a good cooperative storytelling game frostpunk unlocked rachel's beautiful mind 
<laughs> like I said to her the next day, what do you think? And she was like, I've had some thoughts. I just reeled out like three actions, whether do that and get that, and the next time that'll be that, and we'll get an automaton, and we bring that back here, and then we'll go over there, and we'll hire it, and we're like, oh, okay, all right, let me start writing this down. This is a strategy guide I'm doing right now. <laughs> Fully got into it. Okay, final thoughts on Frost Punctual. So my final thoughts are massively thematic and atmospheric. Uh, I think it's a really good transfer from the PC to the board game. You're making meaningful decisions and moral decisions as well. The components are, I can't really fault them. I love, we talked about uh, Robinson Crusoe in, in our last countdown episode and making those decisions that have repercussions. And I think this game is the other game that does it really, really well. There are moments of anger, there are moments of joy, relief and sadness all piled into this. And I think it's a fantastic game and experience. And I'm going to give it a score of 92, Ronan. Are we doing scores? Yeah. Oh, that was a massive score. <laughs> Sorry to ruin the moment of your 92. Uh, I wasn't ready for a score. Uh, <laughs> I've loved it. I'm going to be playing it more as and when I have time. I don't think it needs too many players because too many voices will make it last a long, long time. I think the one aspect that's missing is a slight element of surprise and the unexpected that could bite you. I think it does, you get into a pattern and that's a certain style, but perhaps a little bit more surprise would, would be awesome. Uh, my score would be 88. Yeah, I thought you were going into Scylla, Scylla Black. Surprise, surprise, the unexpected hits you. You literally said it in that sequence. Surprise and unexpected. I see. I see. Yeah. You just want to sing, don't you? No. <laughs> You've already had a go at singing. Well, we both sang Sesame Street. Sunday. <laughs> let's not. Let's not. Right. That was the long review. These are all going to be quick reviews. Yes, Planet hopefully. Unknown, Sean. Planet yes, Planet Unknown, unknown Ronan. A lazy Susan holding a load of polyominoes in which the player who's having their turn spins it to wherever they want it to be, Ooh. plucks one of the two polyominoes in front of them, throws it down on a grid that is their planet. It's going to have two different terrains on, which will push cubes up tracks, which will unlock moves and powers and scoring points. And... It is a highfalutin rando, right? In another form. Hit me. Okay, what else can you say? It's the Lazy Susan Polyomino game. Great. Do you <laughs> like it or not? Tracks. Let's review it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there is contained within a very interesting puzzle. Now, whether it's the most interactive puzzle, it I isn't. think it isn't. I think <laughs> the only interaction comes from in the three-player plus because you choose what side of the, the Lazy Susan you're going to stop in front of you. And that means that everybody else has to get what stops in front of them. So there's a bit of a random going on. And beyond that, there is no interaction. But the puzzle itself, Ronan, I really enjoy for various reasons. I have fun playing it. Do I think it makes any sense at all? I mean, I'll, I'll just use the example. There is a little bit, it's a solitaire puzzle. There's a little bit of interaction in that you get neighbour objectives put between you. And like, say, between Sean and I, there might be whoever has the most separate rover terrains. One of the terrains helps you move rovers around, collect meteorites, collect your life pods and scores of points. Wins a certain number of points. And on the other side, I might have whoever has the most water terrains touching the edge of the planet. Great. Cool. 
in a four-player game, I have control over one quarter of the tiles I draft. <laughs> I may or may not get a lot of Robotroid. I have very little control over that. <laughs> and the neighbour objectives to me just serve to highlight how random it is what you're going to get. There is no strategy. You cannot pretend to have a strategy in Planet Unknown. You don't know. You've purely tactical. Great. What have I been given this turn? Oh, I've been given this. I'll do what I can with it. There is fun in that. I love games like that. As I've said before, I would rather react all the time. Oh, there's my puzzle for this turn. Oh, there's my puzzle for this turn. Rather than go, right, okay, I'm trying to get here and I'm going to do these 54 incremental steps to get to there. And you love those games too. Don't give me that rubbish. I Over you, I think between the two of us, I prefer the tactical, right, throw it at me, than the strategic ones. This really does throw it at you. It really, like, it really yeah, 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 it cool. does. I love it. <laughs> Keeps me on my toes. So... At the end of playing it for 45 minutes or whatever, and one of the good things about it, it doesn't matter how many players you've got, it's going to play roughly the same amount of time anyway. Mm-hmm. Who wins is decided by the gods? <laughs> it's... Uh, no, no. I think it's it's how clever you are with literally putting the polyomnos together and filling the spaces because you can get to a point where you can't finish your planet or come even anywhere close to finishing your planet because you've just built it poorly. Um, You've got to think about specialising in certain tracks. And I know that's in the lap of the gods to a certain point if you you never get off of those those tracks. But I think there is always... It swings in roundabouts and it will come back to you. you It doesn't, though. Not within one game. It doesn't always swing back to you. Or usually, usually. There's the, you couldn't there's decide, like, you can start collecting cars to score loads for meteorites. Go, I'm going to get loads of rovers here and collect all these meteorites and collect the cars and make them better. And then just not get me. And then what you can do is use the bonuses on tracks and always use them for rovers. But still, someone who just happened to get more rovers will get more movement than you. It, it, you are throwing yourself into the game and going, some stuff is going to happen to me. And I'm going to do a puzzle and it's going to be funny. And at the end, someone's going to win. But the same random stuff is happening to everyone. It's just whoever reacts to it the best, to be honest. I don't know about reacting to the best. It's a bit like, especially when you flip them over and start playing with the combos of corporations and planets. And you're just into like, this This game is just mental. Anything can happen. <laughs> I'm just jumping around like a... Well, you can start moving the cubes across the different tracks and then using ones to catch up with other ones. I'm just looking at it going, what the jeez? I got one where I had one rover on my corporation and then on my planet I had a big chasm down the middle <laughs> you can't you can't move your rover but luckily the one rover's got a teleport power so I had to unlock that to get across so I'm like I was going mental I'm like this is so much to think about here but the input I'm getting is completely random I'm like this is nuts I'm, I'm laughing I'm having fun but it is a definitely a unique sort of fun that everything I'm you're saying is making me want to play the game even more <laughs> that sounds amazing <laughs> You're laughing, you're having fun. It's like, yeah, it is random. You're doing mini puzzles all the time. You've got mini wins all the time. Yeah, all right, I figured that one out. Oh, no, here's another one. Yeah, I figured that one out. I, I think it's, it's... Oh, I haven't top. figured it out, and I've got 28 meteorites left at the end, and I scored 11 points. It's like, that can happen to you. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's, you've got to be prepared to throw your hands up and go, yeah, 
happens. There's 45 I've had, minutes. I, I've had fun. It didn't work out this time. Ho-hum. Exactly. We're coming from the same place. I don't know yeah. how highly you're going to rate it. Yeah. I'm happy to play Planet Unknown. And I'm in the right mood. It doesn't last too long. Everyone's moaning about the same things. Everyone's having a good time. I gave it a 67, Sean. It's a fun <laughs> distraction. Oh, me and you are going to have to have a fight. I just love it. Lo- lots of ability to chain. It's an interesting puzzle. Who doesn't love a resource track? It's um, I would say it's Tetris with teeth. And it was a contender for Game of the Year for me until our previous review came around. I'm going to give it an 85. Okay. I'm sending medical help. <laughs> the next one's all yours. It's a worker placement with a twisty doody, and it's called Federation. It is called Federation, coming from Explorate, Dimitri Poirier and Mathieu Verdier. So Federation was a game, it came out in Essen of last year, and I had I had a good sniff at it. But by the time I went round there, either it hadn't made it to the halls or it sold out. But uh, I finally tracked down a copy from France and got it sent over to myself. And what it is, it's another load of tracks, Ronan. So... You've got a central piece, which is the Galactic Federation. Imagine Star Wars when you've got all the different federation and they're all voting on who's going to be the president, etc. Federation Star Trek, mate. Don't know what you're talking about. I think you might mention you're talking about the Senate. Is it the Senate? The Senate, that's the one. Yeah. Just double-checking. <laughs> the- oh, I don't want to be sad or anything, but... The Senate, indeed, indeed. You are correct. And all around that, are lots of different tracks that work in, in different ways. And you're, you're placing your workers down to activate these tracks. Now, the way the workers work is twofold. So you can place them down for votes in the Senate or the Federation, and you're going to be voting for the left side or the right side, depending on how far you up on a certain track. So if the orange planet is on the right side this turn, and the pink planet is on the left side, and I'm miles up in the orange planet, and I'm nowhere on the pink planet, then obviously I'm going to be trying to vote the pink planet in. So that, there's, there's that aspect of it. You're also voting for rows and you're going to get points depending on how high you up are on another different track. The flip side of the, the work what I'm trying to get to with the workers is it's end of game scoring and you're funding a project that you're trying to get to the end and then that's going to score you end of game scoring again based on how far you got up a track. So it's basically a voting game surrounded by loads of tracks. Right? And that's pretty much what Federation is. It's got the twist, and everyone loves the twist, the fact that you can put your workers down either side and use them to manipulate that. Yeah. Going to the core of it, if it didn't have that twist, and we're not, not going to ignore it in any way, but just going to the bones of it, would it work as a straight-out, blocky worker placement game in which you are taking a spot that your rivals can't take then off you, and that does that work in its base ability? Does it need the twist? I think it would be still a sound game. I think the twist just elevates it a little bit more, but I think it would be a sound game because each of the different tracks do very different things and they chain off each other in very different ways. So the Pink Planet has characters that you can get into your tableau that give you one-off power or an ongoing power and allow you to boost in other areas. There's the Green Planet, which is the Tech Planet, that allows you to again, bring different tech in and score points from different ways and get bonuses at the end of the round, etc. So there's lots of things going on within the planets themselves. And all the, the central mechanism does is amplify your scoring 
for those planets. So the planets themselves are the game. I think the gimmick in the middle with the Senate and all the Federation is just a way of amplifying the scoring for everything else. And when you're playing, how much are you getting pulled by your own strategy towards the projects you're trying to do and your other long terms and then the tactics of the other players as to where they're going and the balance between the two things of reacting to other players and still keeping on track as to what you're trying to do? You can certainly go down a path on your own. There's lots of ways to victory on this one. You do need to be mindful of the other players and you certainly, and this this is where the voting elevates it because what you can't have is somebody who's miles along on a planet and that planet comes up in the voting and they're pushing hard for that to be voted in for that round. You can't let that happen because that is a mainstay of the scoring for the game. So it keeps you interested in what they're doing, even if you previously had no real interest in it. And you mentioned there there's loads of different ways of scoring. Is there clarity in scoring? Are you clear that this is what I'm doing is going to score these points and you're scoring points for that so that you can analyse the game state? Or is it a like very point salady and it ends up coming from everywhere and like, oh, in the end you won? It's not as point salady as I thought it was going into my first game. I think that you can see where people are going to score their points. Now there is, with the, the flip side of the workers and your funding projects, there is the chance that that project won't get to the end. So you're not 100% sure if you're going to be able to manage that and do everything else you want it to do. So that might be one sh- one vote short or one backing of it short to get there. So that can be a bit touch and go towards the end. But generally, you can see where people are going. Right. Does it merit 32 pages of rules? No. <laughs> <laughs> the, rule, the rule book's actually very good, but it's massive pictures all through it. And... They do over-explain things. Like, there's one planet situation where you're literally moving along to get resources. That took two double, like a double spread to show you. Like, you move along here and you get that resource that you land on. Oh, and you can just take a slight diversion and go and get resources, but you'll be slower getting to the end. That's all you need to know. And there's two pages for it. (laughs) I heard that. Right. Federation... It wasn't on my radar. You've pulled it on my radar. You are tantalizing me. And the things <laughs> I've read, I've read, there's not been a huge amount of reviews, but many, many good comments about it as a solid Euro with interesting twists. I think that you like it quite a lot. You've already handed out two high scores. What's your score for Federation? So my score for Federation will be, so you put me on the spot, well, I put myself on the spot, but you put me on the spot. That didn't make any sense. There are spots and people. <laughs> and you told me you were doing Federation at the last minute. So, here we go. Federation is, at the moment, an 86. Well, somebody got out of the right side of bed today. Someone's been rolling uh, along. <laughs> right, let's stay in Euroland. But we're not going to be colourful. And either Star Trek or Star Wars themed, depending on... Oh, we're going to be beige. Sure, (laughs) We're going to have three different types of grey in our dice. Ty Leetum. Sean. Is that how you say it? Tillitum. Tillitum. Ty Leetum. Tillitum. Tiny Tim. Tiny Tim, yes. Are you brave enough to attempt to explain this in one minute or less? I will do my best. So, coming from... uh, the design team of Simone Luciani and Daniele Tashini and Borden Dice. Essentially, what you're doing is you're using dice 
to fund your actions and to take resources. And it's a clever system where if you if you have a six on the die, you're going to get one resource and vice versa and everything in between. And you need your action points to go and do the actions around. <laughs> if you have a six like you get six action points, but you only get one resource. If you have a one on the Oh, there you go. I've got it the other way around. Six resources. <laughs> yeah, that was, you left me baffled and I've played the game. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it, it's one of the two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it is one of the two, but it, yeah. you're in. Go, yeah, go, yeah. go, go. So go, go, go. And why are you? There's a thing with dice where the number matters, yeah, but that matters yeah. in reverse as and well. And you need action points, and you need resources, and the That's number good, matters. Yeah. That's all you need to know. Yeah. And good. Why are you doing that? Because you're travelling around the board. Why you're doing that is the key question to the whole game, by the way. Why are you doing that? I don't know why you're doing that, but you're building cathedrals and putting down houses. Orleans style you have your own player board where you are bringing in characters to fill houses to get bonuses to unlock more ways of placing more things out on the board and on top of that you've got a king track that's going to get you more stuff at the end of each round if you go up it there you go i just i mean i've just got comments about everything you just said (laughs) i wonder whether to start with the king's favor Shall I just start? Let's go back to the dice action. Let's go the back dice to the dice action thing. Is the whole hook of the game? It's the only unique thing about the game. Mm-hmm. It is quite interesting within itself. The prioritization changes each turn, and and it turns around so that what was worth one and six last next time will be two and five this time, and whatever it might be. And at the extremes, it's an interesting choice. In the middle, we're getting a three or four or four or three is rarely that important that mechanism has to be powerful enough to drive whatever else they choose to attach to it. What were your thoughts on that action selection and, and what's action and resource selection? So initially I was quite enamored of the way it was working and the choices I was having to make. But through as the games went through, I started to realize Ryan, that they were kind of driving my choices for me because they move around and where they fit on the, on the board. You can tell roughly like there's not going to be much movements towards the end of this game. So I have to do all my movement now at the beginning of the game. Otherwise, I'm going to miss out on getting around the board. And then that's kind of driving that. And then the next round, the obvious choices might be to start placing houses down or to build some of those cathedrals or get characters in. It kind of pushes you in a, in a quite strongly in a direction i concur with that to a degree i mm-hmm. still think it's interesting enough as a mechanism and then the key to me became what they put on top of it and how much weight it could possibly bear and not that interesting mechanism can drive interesting scoring but you need a great mechanism to drive loads and loads and loads of other mechanisms and this is where it lost me all right your house sean you get coats oh. of arms and you get people, and it does some stuff. What? <laughs> it doesn't make thematic sense at all. Yeah, you're just... Or mechanical houses. sense? Or... <laughs> More mechanical sense than thematic sense, I would say. You're, you're, you're filling the house to give yourself a reward and to remove a certain item that can go on the board, and it kind of does all chain together in a weird way, but you, you have to play it a couple of times to get familiar and comfortable with the way that they chain together i'm gonna say right 
they had five things to do with these dice. They needed a sixth one, and they walked over. <laughs> the king to, track. What they've got is they've got this box, and it's full of like hay, and inside it is just a load of euro mechanisms they've discarded as bad ideas. And they just pick one out, and it was the, here's the king's favour. Right, you're going to lose random amounts of points unless you take this action for no reason other than to stop you losing random amount of points. Here is our next shite euro mechanism we're putting into this game. I literally what? written on my notes the king. The king track is just an element too far. It just didn't need it, and it's so. It can be so punishing if you get knocked back. It's misery. It just adds misery to the game. All it adds is frustration and misery. There's nothing positive in that mechanism in any way. It's too powerful for what it is. So if one person gets the only dice with loads of action points to, to assign to that, in that round, you, you're all going backwards. They're firing forward. That's a big point chunk. Yeah, agreed. I think we are completely in accord with uh, the the king's favour being ridiculous. I found the map play more interesting and more interactive and there were races to score some points. And that was the Mm -hmm. best of the resolutions for me. I didn't like building the house with the stuff. I didn't like the king's trap. The map play was a bit more positive. Yeah, I think depending on where the scoring... So at the end of each round is a fair where you, I don't know, do something at a fair and score points. Hey, nonny, nonny. <laughs> and you have to get a- around there to either have your architect there or your wagon or something. And if you're present at the fair, which I suppose does make sense, then you can score the points. If you're not present in any way, you're not going to be eligible to score those points. I found that quite interesting. Are we carnies or are we <laughs> cathedral building architects? <laughs> we are cathedral building carnies. Yeah. So um, they came up with an idea for the dice selection. Believe in your design. (laughs) Design a weight of mechanisms that is appropriate to the thing you have decided is is the hook. Don't over-design it. Don't throw loads of random crap on it. Don't make absolutely no thematic sense in any other part of it. And just, it's like a random, like, here's a king's head, here's a flag, here's a column, here's a cathedral, here's a fair, here's a king's favour, here's, what would you, this is your own, like, they don't make any sense, nothing makes any sense. You've overburdened what could have been an interesting mechanism. It's not awful, it's not very memorable, it's a 56. Tyler, I really liked it in my first game. Subsequent plays, as I said, I started to feel like I was being directed around the board a little bit, more than I was comfortable with. But it's still a, a strongish 72, Ronan, for me. You're just too nice. Stop this nonsense. <laughs> Stop it. Right. Everyone knows, Sean. All right. Do they? What do they Everyone know? Everyone knows that from the age of about eight till about. 1819, the coolest thing. 47. Listen, we're going through some layers here, right? Let me me tell a narrative. The coolest thing you can do is go to stay with your cousin for a week. And (laughs) the first day, get all your pocket money, go to a comic book shop, spend it all, and then spend the rest of the week playing computer games in your cousin's stinky bedroom. Stinky because we were both in it at the same time. Can we just put that out there? Not just generally. I mean, stinky whenever I was in it. Whether you, me, whatever, (laughs) right? Then everyone knows 
when you're a young adult and you're at the foot of a career ladder and you're struggling to pay your bills and pay your rent, whatever you, you don't have money for comics. So the cool thing is to go to comic shops and just flick through comics and look at them because you can't actually <laughs> afford to buy any. But it's still cool to look at comics. Am I right? You're right. You're right. And now everyone knows that Marvel Unlimited is awesome and you should have it if you've got any interesting comic books because it's just brilliant. Am I right? You're right. Okay, great. Everyone also knows that a Brazilian licensed Marvel game that comes (laughs) along that takes four tried and tested drafting techniques in which I'm trying to make collections of comic book covers which I have been looking at and reading for the last 35 years is going to get my attention and if my cousin is wicked enough to order it from Brazil in a group order and I get a copy of Comic Hunters in my hand it's going to be a real hard push for it to be anything other than a success we are the target market for Comic Hunters we are exactly the target market how many times did you go oh I had that comic. Oh, I had that comic. I, I just look through the cards. <laughs> In terms of the game itself, it's got those four basic drafts. It's played over three rounds. You're collecting comic books of different types of heroes. You're making a Spider-Man collection, a Thor collection, a Hulk collection. There's also symbols which can vary, which you want to collect, which will score some other points. The drafts themselves are it's like have five in your hand, take one, pass them on, or there's a little auction, or you're taking a column or a row from a grid. It absolutely, if you've played games, you will 100% understand the cleanliness of the rules and also the cleanliness of the graphic design, Sean, which allows everything to be completely obvious in what you're doing and how you're doing it. It is a very easy learn, and if you understand drafting at all, then it's just four different ways of drafting, really. And none of them not fun. I do like as well, Ronan, the, the way that you have to pay for your collection. So the cards are dual purpose. They're either going in your collection or you have to pay with them. So if I've got a level two Spider-Man and I really want a level two Hulk card, then I've got to pay for it with the Spider-Man or, or something similar. So that, that was interesting, having to pay for everything. That, that, that tickled me a little bit, Ronan. It means in the gritty, gritty, you're just trying to grab as many threes as you can. There's a point where you are grabbing the money. <laughs> Literally, I've got to pay for these. I need these bad boys. <laughs> I've got to pay for them. <laughs> you're a comic hoe. <laughs> for a drafter, I did find it a bit solitaire. I wasn't necessarily aware so much what other people were building because by the time they had a decent collection of a hero up, there was always ways for them to get it. There's comics that have two or three symbols. There's a lot of comic books floating around. You can't directly stop people from getting stuff. So it all keeps it very pleasant and gentle. Everyone is more or less able to build a collection they're quite happy with. Not that I didn't know what other people had, because generally they'll put their cards down. After round one, you can see what Nat's going for Punisher, Ronan's going for Hulk. And you could got a general feeling, but it was, did I care enough to try and stop them? I think I can get more of my Iron Man than you can get of your Black Panther. So I'm going to go for Iron Man. I'm not too fussed. The only little tickle of in- interaction was with the, the slidey, slidey one, where you can slide one card in the sliding grid mm. and people can kind of mess up your combination that you've spotted and they, they nick in and, 
and break it up or take the ones you wanted. That was the only slight one where I was like, yes. I found the biddy biddy one quite interesting. You get rows of cards and people start bidding. And if you're left in last, quite often you'll pay very little and you're actually paying in points, but you'll get yeah. absolute crap. <laughs> and it's how much you're willing to spend to get a good row. But usually a good row actually is worth way more than it ever gets spent on it. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, the money there for that expenditure, expenditure even, is points. So you're, you're kind of weighing up. If I lose five points, am I going to get more than five points worth out of this row of cards? So yeah, interesting. All just little gentle interests. And I think... I can't remember the phrase you used about this game, Ronan, when you said, uh, when, we, when I texted you, did you enjoy I it? I said, it's very pleasant. Pleasant. There you go. It's a very pleasant experience. And I, I think I messaged you straight back and said, that is exactly what it is. And that's why it's a 73, Sean. It's a little bit higher for me. It's a 80 for me. I just enjoy the experience. And every person I've played it with has really enjoyed it too. So. Comic Hunters, a little bit of news, it is coming to this country. I don't know any of the main details, but the guy that the guy that shipped it over in the group buy from uh, his um, Moedas Coins or the, the mm. does that coin company in Brazil, uh, yeah, he's got some inside info. He said it's definitely coming to the UK. Oh, because mm. people I've played it with, every single person I play games in my group loves comic books. We found that out when we played a fun facts once and like how much you like comic books? 96 was like fifth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the priority and everyone, all of them I played it with have gone it, for the game. It's nice and pleasant for the theme. I need it, <laughs> which is what yeah. you did. And I was like, right. I'm going to bring you down from your happiness. Sean, oh, you know. <laughs> Sean, Asmodee killed Pearl Games without telling Pearl Games that we're going to kill them. And whether they're actually dead or not, are they going to rise again? Who knows? But that was a bad thing. What compounded the horror of that situation is a serious situation in someone's business and livelihood. So forgive my uh, my levity, is the fact that people lied about the latest Pearl Games game to come out at that time and said it was a good game. <laughs> I thought you liked this one. <laughs> No, <laughs> this was one of the ones that we, we met, met up um, sort of kind of equidistant from, from each uh, other. Near you. That... Actually, it's near you, actually. <laughs> so not, not equidistant, near you. And maybe you were kind of clasping at straws. I think you were trying to like it, but um, yeah, I didn't get on well with it at all. So, I was trying so to give it should we tell them what it is first? It's Lofoten. Mm. <laughs> I'll say this for a love photo. I'll go on. You tell them what it's about first before I start. Uh, your rival Vikings, you're in some kind of weird wheel ships that keep spinning round and round in circles. And I have no idea why they do that. You're bowling around either side of five docks. The docks hold goods. You can pick up goods from the docks, either of you can, and then you can deliver them and they appear in warehouses and they score points in very boring ways. I do think that there are some nice and interesting mechanisms within the game itself. I think the rotation of the storage and having having an empty space to put your card and then having that being able to spin off that, I thought that was an interesting mechanism in itself. Nah. Nah. No, he's just not having it, no. I, I, <laughs> I'm just for, within that within that framework, it didn't work. 
it, the game felt like it should be dynamic and you should be moving the ship and spinning it and, and having but you end up having so few moves you're, you're managing this three cards and you can play yeah. either the edge cards for the limited number of moves or the middle card for an action right and you I felt like oh I should be dancing around and prioritizing actually if there's a card the other end or a good the other end that I want I'm just going to sit still because these cards are cycling and eventually something will pop up near me that I want. <laughs> the moving just was just a waste of time. I didn't feel dynamic at all. And the moving is a massive part of the game because you have to have your cards, your three cards in your hand in a certain order. So this is such a massive part of the game. I just found the whole thing was fiddly, mechanical and a bit faffy. Yeah, that's why I scored it 35. Oh, I'm nicer than you. I gave it a 42. You are nicer than me, but we agree it's a bad game. Okay, good. The Walls, Sean. Walls, Ronan. Go for it. Each year is a different type of wolf. Whether that's real or not, I don't know. And each type of wolf likes a particular type of terrain. There's a modular board set out in a particular pattern with the different types of terrains around a central square. And then there are scoring markers put out, which tell you not only when each of these uh, tiles is going to score how many points you get for it as well you have got a board on which you've got various bits of wood you're trying to get out onto these tiles in order to score area majority the way that you do that and interact with the map and with each other is that you've got a set of terrain tiles by choosing terrain tiles one two or three of them and flipping them over to the reverse side you can take actions on that type of terrain and if you manage to get sets of three and take very powerful actions, you do very powerful things on your turn, or you might be taking smaller actions in order to set yourself up. And what you're trying to do is move around the board with your wolves, spawn wolves or dens or even lairs to give you area control power in the tile that you're on, or possibly steal wolves or dens from either there's some lone ones on the board, you can howl at them and turn them into yours, if there are lone walls of other players, you can steal them. And every time you steal something, say something on the board, it drives on the timer of the game. In order to make these actions you take, you can also upgrade your own board to make your wolves quicker, to make your howl range longer, to have more wolves move with each move action you take. And generally, you are bowling around the place, Sean, in a very fast-paced area majority game. Right, so I haven't played the Walls Ronan, but I did have a very, very close look at it because I thought it might be one for me and Nat. Now, the thing that drew it to me was that the sort of the action selection we have to got to get the right type of terrain, either two or three of the same terrain. A, how difficult is that? And B, how much does it drive everything else? It's not that difficult. There's always something positive you can do. And you can always, because no one can interfere with your own tiles, you can always set yourself up. If you want to do something very big, you can see the, the path through it. It's only a couple of flips away. And because you flip twice in a turn, if I want to do something really big, it's only ever one extra turn away. So you can generally always set yourself, always set yourself up. What you've got to mitigate against is that it's a very fast-paced game and it's a very interactive game and that you can't get set in too much of a pattern, and that what was a good move a while ago, is it still a good move by the time I've, even in that short time frame, I've set it up? Is it still the most positive thing to do? So you're, you know, trying to remain flexible while still focusing on where you think you're going to score points, because where you go to score points is where you go, 
although the points score in three different sections and phases, it's not like everyone goes to the first section, has a bit of a ruck, then everyone goes to the second section and has a bit of a ruck. It's too fast-paced for that. If you go to the first section, those Wolves might not be involved in any more of the game at any point because its scoring goes boom and boom and boom and it's fast and it's vicious. So yes, it's fairly easy to set up big moves, but you might not have time for those big moves. So you mentioned upgrading your wolves. So I know there's the alpha. Is there neutral wolves like dotted around and the alpha can convert them? Is that, am I imagining that? No, yeah, there's discs on the board. So anytime you take something off the board, that's that's the tracker and you put them on a track and when a certain number of things, depending upon player count, comes out, that's when you start hitting the scoring rounds. And you can do it not only to the ones on the board, but also to other players, as I said, individual wolves. Mm. So you've always got to be aware. And if you leave a wolf on its own, either go, well, that's I don't care. That's useless because everything's a target. Everything can be attacked unless you're, you can only have a maximum of two alphas are in the area protecting them or you've got them in a little pack. And again, that, that provides a tiny... People have said this is very themeless. No, that's thematic. Strength in the pack. That's- it's that's, I don't know what they're looking for, a theme out of a Wolves game. Like, it's, you know, we'll <laughs> go and eat our own feces. I don't know. I don't know what they want. But to, to me, that was thematic no, That's enough. just a you thing. Shh. That was back in the comic book days. Shh. We don't talk about that anymore. That's why the room was so smelly. So you mentioned it being vicious. So is it knowing knowing me as you do? Very few people know me better. Is it too vicious for me, or is it kind of comedy vicious, and you just have to do it, and it's fine? It's not quite comedy vicious. It does always get a little bit like, ah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of that to it, really annoying because you tend to have various targets so it's not like well you're the only one i could do it to you can move and attack someone else so you are definitely making a choice but at the end of the day again that kind of leads into it me it's it's a competition and it's clearly a competition and it's not a friendly competition so you got to lean into that this is not a nice pleasant game but nothing is too permanent. It doesn't take long to play. So you're not sitting there yeah. for an hour steaming over the fact they stole that two points from me. You, you move on quickly and you, you move on to sort of, yeah, get you, get you. So I know you've played this one quite a bit, yourself and Rachel and a few others. Um, so when does it sit, Random? What's your rating for this one? There's, there's good, there's good, Shawnee, and there's bad, Shawnee. <laughs> okay. And a man is slightly torn on wolves. It looks really nice. The meanness is good. The fast pace is... That's all very promising. There's bits about the gameplay that I absolutely love. In terms of scoring for points, the scoring for the board play, I love. You score for everything you do that you upgrade. So if if you upgrade your speed, you get points for it. If you upgrade your how, you get points for it. I don't love that. The game should be strong enough. In, In most cases for me, I hate getting points just for upgrading. I got the upgrade. That's the bonus. It's up to me to be smart enough to use that upgrade to score points, not just give me free points for becoming better. So that's one of the things I don't love about it. The action tile system itself is okay. It's a slight puzzle. It works. It's intuitive. There's nothing fiddly about it. What's bad and has put off several of the players that I've played with is that there are issues with the turn order. And certainly if you are last in turn order, second last, whatever, you're at a big disadvantage because that scoring will happen when the scoring happens. And each turn's quite dynamic. And if you end up just having had one less turn for the whole game, every time scoring happens, you've had one less turn. Now, it's only one less turn over the whole game, 
But let's say the first scoring comes around and you haven't had your turn, your last player. You're suffering there. Then you're the first player to start preparing for the next scoring, meaning we can all react to you. And let's say it scores again that you haven't had that extra go to make it up. It makes it feel very tough. And scoring has somewhat followed the pattern of turn order. First player never changes. You just go round and round in a circle. I don't know what the issue was with them just passing first player either clockwise or anti-clockwise at the end of a round. At least it makes people feel better. Definitely that has upset a lot of people. I would love to see that fixed somehow. I think it's an attractive, fast-paced, area majority game. I enjoy it. I give it a 68. If they fix the turn order issue, that score could go up. Lovely. Right. We're going to go into two games now that I know little to nothing about, Ronan. So it's all on you. Great. Hanamakoji, Geisha's Road. Sean, let's put ourselves in an alternate universe, all right? Okay. I'm single. You know someone you think I might like. Right. You say to them, he's not the ugliest dude I've ever seen. So I lie. Right, not okay. the <laughs> ugliest dude I've ever seen. I hope, like, not the actual, all right? <laughs> right, go on. Yep, yep. Or you say to them, he looks like a sexy Seth Rogen. I, I can't see myself saying that, but go on. Presentation... And comparisons matter, is what I'm trying to say to you. I All get, right? I get, I get you. I get you. Hannah Makoji Geisha's Road. Hannah Makoji already exists. It does. It's a 59. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> is it the same game? Exact same action selection with slightly fiddlier, fiddlier results. Right. Why? 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 <laughs> All right, well that was that was pain painless. Okay, five thrown. <laughs> why? I don't. Why? Why have you done this to me? Right, five. F Y F E. Foxtrot Yankee. Foxtrot Echo. There are 125 discs, Sean. Wooden, vibrantly coloured discs. On the stickers on them, there are five colours. There are five numbers, and there are five pictures. So there's one of each combination, which adds up to 125. You're right. Well done. Good. They all get chucked into a big bag. On a turn, everyone simultaneously draws one of the discs and places it into their own 5x5 five five grid. Once a disc is on the board, it must have at least one scoring condition pointing at it. You've got a whole raft of scoring conditions. You choose which one you're going to do with this. So you're going to say, I'm going to make all the numbers in this row the same. I'm going to follow a specific pattern of pictures in this column. I'm going to make sure there's three of one and two of another of the colours in this diagonal. And you're deciding how you're going to score all the subsequent discs that you pull. So I pull out a one, I put it to the left of a row, and then I decide just for myself, I'm going to try and make this a one, two, three, four, five across the row. And if I manage to do that, as I subsequently draw discs every turn, I get to, then at the point I've got the one, two, three, four, five, I flip it over and I'm going to score those points at the end of the game. We've all got the same set of scoring conditions. You're not going to use all of them. You haven't got room for it. But the first person to score each set of scoring conditions is going to get a three-point bonus. There are seven lucky charm. I was told I have to say that in an Irish accent when I was teaching the game every time. For seven lucky charm discs within the bag, when they get pulled by anyone, they pull another disc to replace it. But everyone has got seven special powers and everyone may use one of their special powers to either move 
one of the discs they've already placed, put a wild joker in place, change one of your scoring conditions, take one you've scored and put another one in, something like that, that you can manipulate what you've done already so you don't get completely stuck in your early decisions. They are, there are ways to manipulate them, but if you don't use your powers, they're going to score you points at the end of the game. That's five. There's random input. It's not as random as a roll and right because there is one of each disc. There is one number two purple turtle. There is one number three red flower. There's only one disc of each type. So you can look around and when you're trying to make a pattern, you can see I need exactly the blue pineapple four. It's not in play. Okay, that this is a valid pattern. And you're just eyes down, scrunching your face up, doing your own little puzzle as you play through Fife. And it's a solo puzzle. And mostly the group activity that takes place during the game of Fife is moaning and squinting. When you take a tile, do you have to place it in your tableau or can it go into like a, a discard pool? Right. So you have, no, you can't discard it. You have two. So in the first round, you draw two and then you must play one of them and then you draw another one and you play one of your two. You can never discard one away other than. There's two lucky charm powers that you can turn them into wilds somehow. Yeah, an abstract optimization game with some bit, bit of luck thrown in. I don't think it's funny. <laughs> if you've got Calico and Cadera Park and Rise of Augustus and Framework and they had a baby, <laughs> you'd have five. <laughs> it's really pretty. It's got lovely components. My boards are a little bit warped, but the discs are lovely. It's pleasant. It's challenging. It's solitaire-ish. It's a puzzle. Do you like a pleasant, challenging, solitaire-ish puzzle? I do. I'm giving it a 78. It plays really quickly, simultaneously. You're having fun. And if you like any of those bingo-y sort of games, Fife is worth a thought. You know what I do? So maybe, maybe I will give it a go. Maybe maybe I should, should give it a go because I do like Augustus and I do like Calico. And I've never played Framework. So yeah, maybe I will like it. I'm probably going to bring it to Eastbourne because it's like a sit down. It takes no time to teach and you're drawing stuff and you're chatting while you do it and you're having a good time and you're just doing your own thing and it works for that. Cool. Well, I, I, I am now changing my mind and I'm quite looking forward to it. Well, that was easy. You're easily led. That's one of your best features. <laughs> right. I'm going to make you talk about a German abstract toll layer by Anna Knizia. Go. <laughs> Why are you making me? So Axio Rota is a game in which you are given a certain amount of tiles and you have to lay those tiles on a central tableau um, shared by everyone. And what you're trying to do is match colours, which basically form circles of colours. So you, you put it in your quadrant. You score by... So if I was to put a red next to a red, I would get one point because I'm placing it adjacent to one contiguous red. If I was to put a red into a circle with three other reds and complete that circle with four reds, I would score three points. And they're all different colours, and there's some wilds in there. And typical Knizia, it's the colour that you've scored the least of is your end-of-game score. There is rewards for getting to the end of a track. I think it's an extra turn if you get to an end of a track of a colour, but that's pretty much it. And I think you came down thinking I was going to hate this one moment. Yeah, it's based on Ingenious. It's a different mm. take on it. It's much smaller. It's even quicker to teach, and it's 
very, very quick to play. It takes about 10 minutes to play. I yeah. had very little hope for it. I've been handed it by Pegasus Spiel a while ago. It's taken me a while to get it to play. Like, ah, this and one time I was like, yeah, sure, I'll play this. And it sat there in a little pile of small games. And whatever possessed me one day, I was like, look, let's get this out. It's not going to take long to learn. Played it and was pleasantly surprised. Perhaps, again, going back to Gage's Road, low expectations. But it did give me a bit of a feel of ingenious. It did give me a little bit of interaction. You can't control the board completely, but you can try and stitch people up. And oh, Sean definitely needs purple. Well, I'm going to go here and score almost no points to make sure he can score no purple. <laughs> because if he's on two purple, I'm going to win the game either way around. And, uh, but the board is expansive enough that you can't totally block people out. It doesn't get very, very yeah, frustrating. Yeah. It takes two minutes to teach, ten minutes to play. I thought, maybe... Maybe he'll see some sins, and I might get a that wasn't awful out of him. Well, what I, what I kind of realised from it that there's always an option, and it's always about obviously finding the best option. But there's little tiny like you can lure your opponent into doing something. So if I know Ronan really fancies orange, and there's a purple there, but I don't have the tile to put down, maybe I can make that orange a little bit better for him. So. If I do pick up that purple tile, he isn't going to do what he just said. I'm just going to go and nix it because the orange tile is worth a lot to him, but purple might be worth slightly more to me. Setting those little things, and it's another one where without the Knizia scoring, I don't think it would be so as enjoyable because you just get a runaway leader. Well, I've scored a ton of red, you ain't catching me. And you'd know before the end. And because of that Knizia scoring, it's so ingenious in itself. Oh, ingenious. I like that. It just makes it so that you're always interested and you're always keeping an eye on, well, what's your lowest one? What's your lowest one? So, yeah, a simple but with just enough depth to make it fun. And I ended up really enjoying it, and I'm going to give it a 68. It's the sort of game that becomes a sort of mass market hit in Germany where so many people are willing to just play a game. And I kind of wish you could do this and, and you could pull out a game like this over here and with almost anyone and they'd be like, oh yeah, I'll give it a go. And they'll find themselves having 10 minutes of fun. For some reason, we've got a different culture, different approach to playing games. But it has got that mass market appeal of very easy, very easy to understand and that twist. And do you know what? I'll give it a 68 too, Sean. That's 68. There we go. <laughs> why, why wouldn't we do that? Solidarity. I like that for once in our life. Right. I told you we'd get through them quick. We did. We did. We raced through them. I I thought you you laboured a bit on Geisha's Road. Sorry. I'm going to go back and edit that. Make sure it gets a bit shorter. I'll take the crap Seth Rowling joke out. So we are off to LobsterCon down in Eastbourne very soon. So you can expect some news coming out of that from us. Um, Plenty of reviews. Hopefully we get plenty of games played. And before then, hopefully we will get our episode 200, Ronan. Can you believe it? Well, our episode 200 and something because we messed up the scoring. But our episode 200. 204 <laughs> in reality. I worked it out. Yeah, episode 200 is coming with our top 20 games each of all time. We're going to work out when to record that as soon as we hit the stop button on recording today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ronan. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us this time on the Game Pit Podcast. Thank you indeed. And as ever, we are proud members of the, not the Game Pit, because we are the Game Pit, of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower as well for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to contact us, and please do, we always love to hear from people. We don't hear enough from you guys. Uh, We are 
thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com or you can pop along to Board Game Geek and drop a comment into our guild there. If you want to catch us on social media, we've got Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time on The Game Pit. Boy, 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 boy.